Welcome back to the Longleaf Podcast. Today is Wednesday, April the 17th, and just as we expected, the big news today is the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Act. We'll get into some of the common counter arguments being made against this bill and talk about the implications as it heads to the governor's desk. Senate will come to order. Sergeant Arms will close the doors. Members and will go to their seats. Okay, so the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Act passed the House comfortably yesterday with four Democrats reaching across the aisle and joining the Republican majority to send it through that chamber after passing the North Carolina Senate a few days prior. That's where the bill originated. Now, this bill didn't just come up out of the blue. It's a response to some late-term abortion laws passed in other states, most notably Virginia and New York. In New York, a bill was signed into law that allows abortions to be performed up to the point of birth. And in Virginia, the bill didn't actually pass, but would would have done much of the same thing. Notably, Governor Ralph Northam down in Virginia was on the radio talking about what would happen in the rare case that a baby was supposed to be aborted and was instead born alive. Governor Northam said something to the effect of the baby would be kept comfortable and the doctors and the mother would decide what to do. So that's what's going on. That's why this bill is put into practice, uh, passed, sent to Governor Cooper's desk. I want to talk about some of the counter arguments that have been made against this bill and explain why they don't make a whole lot of sense. So there's two main counter arguments. One that you'll hear is that this is an unnecessary law, that it doesn't really do anything, that babies are already legally protected, and this is just trying to stoke moral outrage. Um, Okay, so I hear that argument, but I, I also say then yes. I mean, I am willing to concede that this is a rare circumstance. I'm willing to, you know, already late-term abortions are rare. Uh, I would have to uh, believe that babies born alive during or immediately after an abortion procedure is even more rare. But just because something is rare doesn't mean that we don't need a law uh, about it or that it's not worth considering or legislating. I mean, bank robberies are rare. According to the FBI crime statistics, there were only 180 bank robberies in the state of North Carolina in 2017. That's rare. It's, <laughs> But who would argue that bank robberies shouldn't be against the law? Uh, I mean, you can make the same argument. Um, and, and most crimes in general are rare. I mean, even look at the murder rate. I mean, I think North Carolina had something like 600 murders in the state uh, in 2017. That's around one per 100,000 population. That's rare. But obviously, it would be ridiculous to argue that that shouldn't be illegal. So just because something's rare doesn't mean shouldn't be addressed. Um, whether it's covered by existing laws, I mean, if it is covered by existing laws, then so much the better. Um, we have plenty of laws that strengthen or intensify um, other laws. We have domestic violence laws. I mean, it's already illegal to hit somebody, but we have laws that make it especially uh especially against the law is not an artful way to put it, but to intensify the penalties and to intensify the um, laws behind it uh, for domestic violence. So just because something may have been uh, covered under existing law is not an argument against this new law. Finally, I mean, the, the main thing is, though, that we just don't know how rare this is, to be honest. So North Carolina is not one of the very, very few states, I believe it's less than a half dozen states, that require data to be kept on babies born alive during abortion procedures and what happens to them. And that is one of the impacts of this law. Um, healthcare practitioners are required to keep track of this if 
a baby is born alive and isn't given the proper care, there is a duty to report. Um, so hopefully, hopefully, um, there, this will continue to be exceedingly rare, uh, but we won't know until we actually track it. All right. So that's the number one counter argument that this doesn't really do anything. The second counter argument is, uh, kind of paradoxical to the first one. The second counter argument comes from the ACLU of North Carolina, and they call this an extreme anti-abortion law. So I don't get how you can argue both sides of it, how opponents of this bill can argue both sides. One, it's ineffective and doesn't do anything. And two, it's extreme. Um, I don't really have a whole lot to say about the, the being extreme bit, um, except that it's, I mean, it just clearly can't be true because the left is already arguing that this is an ineffective law that's unnecessary. All right. So what happens next? This is going to Governor Roy Cooper's desk. Um, His office has already indicated that he will veto it. This would be the first veto of the 2019 long session and the first veto since Democrats broke the Republican supermajorities in both the state House and the state Senate. So if you've been following politics for the last couple of years, anytime Governor Cooper vetoed bills and he did so at record rates, it didn't really matter because the supermajorities in both houses would immediately override it Um, and the bill would go into law regardless. Now, this kind of freed Governor Cooper up to be a little more liberal with his vetoes if he knew that it wasn't going to have an actual repercussion, that it was just going to be overridden anyway. uh, He could feel free to veto bills to make a political statement on perhaps one tiny part of something. Um, We saw this with uh, especially some legislative fix bills in, in previous years where Governor Cooper could pick out one tiny part of it and say, this is why he's vetoing it, knowing that the business of government could still be run. Now, now Governor Cooper's veto has a whole lot of meaning and we'll see how he chooses to couch his veto message if he does indeed decide to veto this bill. Um, If he does, and I expect that he will, this is going to go counter to the majority uh, of North Carolinians, how they feel about abortion. Late-term abortions only are supported by something like 10% of the country and of the state in general. They're very, very unpopular. These laws, um, that, like this bill that's just been passed by the North Carolina House and Senate, are fairly popular, especially with undecided, unaffiliated voters. Um, the optics for Governor Cooper are not going to be too great, especially for someone who's going to need to take a, a pretty narrow path through his re-election bid in 2020. You'll remember Governor Cooper only won by about 10,000 votes in 2016, and this was, and that was a pretty special circumstance. Governor Pat McCrory was fairly unpopular in certain areas uh, for different reasons. One, in the Iredell Lake Norman area, uh, because of the toll lane project on I-77, cost him more than enough votes to swing the election in Wake County and the surrounding suburbs, there was the dynamic of House Bill 2, which had had a, a pretty detrimental effect on the state economy. So those things presumably won't be going in Governor Cooper's favor in 2020. And you can bet that should Governor Cooper veto this bill, that this will be a top attack line in the 2020 elections. I do see a path that Governor Cooper could take to sign the bill and include in his message around signing it that he doesn't believe it would really have any effect. It wouldn't change anything for women in the state of North Carolina, but he's signing it in the very rare off chance that that this would help um, some infant. 
But I just don't see that happening. And a lot of the reason is because Governor Cooper is doing a lot of his fundraising up in New York. He's doing a lot of his fundraising in California. Very, very liberal places that would be horrified if Governor Cooper were to sign this bill. Um, could really cut into what, what what already is shaping up to be an extremely expensive governor's race. You know, you'll remember that Governor Cooper started his re-election campaign in New York City with a fundraiser with top donors. Uh, he definitely does not want to jeopardize that. Now, it will be fascinating, should Governor Cooper veto this bill, what's going to happen if the state House and state Senate will indeed take up an override, and I expect that they will. You already had some members of the state house crossing the aisle uh, from Democrat, the Democratic side to support this bill, and you have to believe that some of the more vulnerable Democrats, especially in more rural areas, are going to feel pressured to support this bill. Um, it, it, it really just depends on you know, whether the Republican leadership in the General Assembly has built up some of those relationships, has built up some of those skill sets and actually reaching out to members of the Democratic Party to support legislation that they want passed. Um, they haven't had to do that yet. They've had super majorities for, for years. So this, this is, is going to be a very interesting experience to see how this happens, what the impact of the blue wave in North Carolina in 2018 was, at least in the General Assembly. Either way, though, this appears to be uh, a political win for Republicans. If they're able to get an override, then they score. They make Governor Cooper look weak, and they get to attack him as being pro-infanticide. If the bill dies, then they have ready-made attack lines for the 2020 elections. Um, this is a bill that's straightforward, that while it's rare, it helps a sympathetic group of people, uh, newborn babies, um, and we'll see what happens. Okay, that was the big news of the day, but we'll hit a couple things before we wrap up for today. A Wake County judge has ruled that Reverend William Barber is allowed back in the General Assembly building. You may recall Reverend Barber as the former head of the North Carolina NAACP and the person behind the Moral Monday movements after Republicans took over the majority in the General Assembly. He organized marches on the General Assembly building trying to disrupt the business holding uh, going on in there and make a point and make headlines. Now, Reverend Barber and a number of other activists were arrested as part of those protests, some of them numerous times. And what judges were doing in a lot of these cases was uh, as a condition of the plea bargain, uh, barring these folks from entering the General Assembly for a period of time. Uh, I believe these activists were required to petition to have their access to the General Assembly building restored. Uh, the state did not fight a lot of these requests, and a lot of folks have been granted their access, but Reverend Barber was not. He had asked for his permission to be returned. Uh, the state was not interested in allowing that, and so it went before a Wake County judge who ruled that he could not be singled out in this way, that he is allowed back in the General Assembly building. You have to imagine he'll be on the scene for the May 1st teacher rally. We'll see what impact this has and what happens with that moving forward. Uh, perhaps he'll get arrested again. Perhaps he won't. Perhaps he'll, uh, but in any case, he's going to put another microscope on what's happening with the General Assembly and teachers. And finally, Democrat Dan McCready, who's running in the 9th Congressional District special election, has returned a 2000 donation made to his campaign by Representative Ilhan Omar. If that name sounds familiar, that's because Representative Omar has been in the news a lot lately for some controversial comments she's made. First, a series of comments that ha have been widely uh, understood to be anti-Semitic, in including saying that Jews have tricked the world, 
uh, or Israel has tricked the world into supporting them, uh, been roundly criticized even by members of her own party. Most recently, Representative Omar described, uh, was on video describing the 9-11 terrorist attacks as somebody did something. Now, there is an argument whether that was taken in the proper context. Either way, you could definitely describe that as insensitive. So, Dan McCready has returned that $2,000 donation, will not make a very big dent in his $1.6 million war chest that he amassed just in the first quarter of 2018, or 2019, sorry, uh, and that goes on top of everything that he had collected last year. Now, I'm not particularly surprised to hear this news. Uh, Dan McCready has tried to go the country over party route during the whole campaign, He notably said he would not support Nancy Pelosi for speaker. That, of course, turned into a moot point when he was not seated in Congress in time to vote for or against Nancy Pelosi. Um, He has continued. As the Republicans are still battling it out in the primary, uh, Democrat Dan McCready does not face a primary. He has not really faced very many questions yet. That's going to all change. The 9th Congressional District primary is in early May. Early voting starts next week, April 24th. After that, you have to imagine anybody who's coming out of the Republican primary is going to hit Dan McCready hard on on the perception that he has evaded the issues, on the perception uh, that he will indeed vote in lockstep with other members of the Democratic Party in the U.S. House, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the representative from New York, and Representative Omar. So another interesting development, whether this will actually give him some political insulation from the more left-leaning members of his own party. Remember, the 9th Congressional District is very much a red district. It is a a Republican-leaning district, and Republicans have been winning uh, the the media battle or the, the public perception battle, at least so far, and nationalizing the race so far in 2019. All right, well, that's all the time that we have for today on the Longleaf Podcast. As always, go over to longleafpolitics.com and send me an email, andrew at longleafpolitics.com, and we'll see you again soon. So many that favor that motion will say aye. Those opposed, no. The ayes have it. The Senate stands adjourned.